I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a look at music's effect on our everyday lives. 2020 has been quite a year. (laughs) One thing that we have all experienced like never before in this global pandemic and the quarantines that come with it have been restrictions, limitations, and constraints, personally, professionally, and academically. This has caused a lot of us to look back longingly at the status quo and comment that we just want things to go back to normal, back to the way things always were. But what if these restrictions and limitations that we're experiencing could actually increase our creativity and innovation? My guest today is Dr. Patricia Stokes. She has spent time in the worlds of art, business, and education. She is currently an adjunct professor of psychology at Barnard College, Columbia University, and is the author of the book, Creativity from Constraints, The Psychology of Breakthrough. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Dr. Stokes. Thank you, Mindy. Dr. Stokes, musicians are creative people. So are artists, advertisers, educators, parents, builders, and people in just about every vocation. While there certainly are very real negative effects of pandemic limitations, especially within the performing arts world that I don't intend to minimize, you argue in your book that constraints and limitations are a catalyst for breakthrough and innovation. Can you give us a brief overview in layperson's terms of the psychology of limitations and the relationship to creativity? Okay, Mindy, the idea is that what I call the creativity problem is very simple. It's you have, you want to do something new. Okay. You want to do something new. And what you have to do to create something new is to preclude either the situation that you're in, your most successful solution, wherever you are, you have to start with exactly where you are. And I use the model that I use. It has a, what I call a problem space and imagine A problem space has an initial state, which is where you are, you know, in your room during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And the goal state is to do something new. And that's really vague. Okay. That's just too hard. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is put two columns. Okay. So between the goal state and the initial state is what what is called a search space. The search space is where you construct a solution path that gets you from one to the other. And in my model, what you do is you make two columns, and I call them paired constraints. So in the preclude column, we are going to put the aspects of the current situation. And I'll give a really simple example. Um, I'm going to use the pesto example. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm stuck at home. I cannot get to the grocery store, and I really want to make pesto for dinner, but I don't have basil. Okay. So... What the classic pesto recipe calls for in the preclude column are the things that char- characterize it. So I have basil and I have pignole and I have some very expensive Italian cheese, um, not pecorino romano, the other one, the really expensive one. <laughs> and I have garlic and olive oil. The two things I cannot substitute something for are garlic and olive oil. So they go over into a column called retain. And now I have basil and I look around in my refrigerator and out if I'm in the country house where I am out in the garden and I have parsley. And so in the, in the promote column, I put preclude basil, promote parsley. And then I go in the refrigerator and I don't have pignole. I don't have pine nuts. I have walnuts, preclude pine nuts, promote walnuts. 
oh, and I'm out of that really expensive cheese, but I have Pecorino Romano. And so I put that in. And my new solution path is this lighter, part, by the way, lighter and less expensive parsley <laughs> pesto. Okay. okay. I started with what I had and I made substitutions. Uh-huh. And that's how you do it. Okay. I, as you're talking, I'm thinking I would love to have a visual of these different columns that you're talking about. Do you have anything like that? Um, I actually have a PDF file that has a bunch of them. Oh, wonderful. I'll include those in the show notes. Well, one thing I like too about what those columns that you're talking about is the goal state may be a little bit different than what we initially thought. Like I think of band and orchestra teachers in schools and their goal state may have been, okay, at the end of this many weeks or months of school, we have a concert and the kids now have been able to play their trumpets and learned how to play all these instruments. We have a concert for all the parents and guests and It can be easy to think, well, that's the goal, and I can't do that now because of the limitations that we have with the pandemic, but we can reimagine that goal and realize, you know, really the goal is not necessarily to have a concert. The goal is to introduce children to the magic of music and help them make music for the first time and introduce them to how to play these various instruments and instill in them a love and appreciation for music. So I think it can help us take a closer look at what what exactly is the goal and maybe it's not what I initially thought. The goal, actually, uh, both in my model and there's a, there's a, a professor of business at Columbia named Duggan who has a different matrix that he uses. It's also a problem-solving model. And we both have written the same thing, that the goal is not defined until you construct the solution path. Hmm. It changes as you're going along and constructing the solution path. You have sort of a nebulous goal in mind, unless the goal is simply where you've, there are some things that we call problems of scarcity in the innovation literature, where you, a a material is missing and you must find a material to replace it and the goal is the same. But Hmm. in most creativity problems, the goal evolves with the solution path. One other thought that I had as you were talking is in your book, I believe you actually talk about purposely designing constraints in order to boost creativity. And I think that's a really neat concept. And I just wanted to differentiate between that as one road and one path to go down or the path that some of us find ourselves in where we don't necessarily have this great desire to do something new, but we have to do something new because there have been constraints imposed upon us. Yeah, Any so, comments on those two? Yeah, uh, um, I have two other books after this book. The one that was published last year, I wrote with a business person, the head of a business school in Milan. Um, we actually wrote it as a conversation, mm. um, but we talk about problems of scarcity and problems of opportunity. Hmm. So the one where you don't want to do something, but you have to, is a problem of scarcity. Ah. Something has been, so this is a problem imposed on you by the outside. And the problem of opportunity, it usually happens when you notice something. You notice something that makes you think differently. Or actually, it can be either you notice something or you think about what is next. And I think about that with people who are professionally creative. So artists are always looking to see what is what is the next style? How can I push this forward? Musicians are, if you look at the history of jazz, they're always looking to see how can I change this? 
How can I become noticeable? So we're looking for what is new because we notice something new or can we devise this thing that is next? But always the goal is vague until you fill in that promote column, the solution path, it changes. Okay. Now, as you're observing people in the United States or in other parts of the world going through this whole pandemic quarantine situation, are you observing many people who are looking at these limitations and saying, wow, this is really getting my creative juices going because I have these limitations and how are we going to just burst through those and come up with something new? Or are you seeing people tending to take more of an approach of throwing up their hands and saying, well, we can't do things the way we always did, so I guess we're not going to do anything? I guess the, the group that I am most involved with who are doing change are other faculty at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mindy, I have to tell you, I think you know, I know that my husband and I live in a vacuum, a bubble, okay? We live in a beautiful bubble at Greenwood Lake. We have an apartment in the city, but here we are in the country. I'm looking at the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that all of us had to change was how we teach, mm-hmm. okay? And that, that in the spring, um, at the beginning of spring break, when we all got this email from the president of Columbia saying, everybody go home. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there are three days to learn how to use Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I had to figure out a way to take what I do in the classroom and do it online. And I also, by the way, Mindy, I leave all of their 50 faces on the screen. Okay. They all pop on one by one. This is something that was really new. I thought, I thought, oh my God, in the spring, it worked well because I'd have the class for half the semester and I knew a lot of them, but online they pop on and their names are under their faces. So I can say, hi, Mindy. Hi, (laughs) Hi, Alan. Hey there. How are you, Adeb? Um, And ask them questions and ask them what they're doing and where they are. And I go on early and I stay a half hour later. And I keep myself small on the screen unless I have to do a demonstration. And it has become strangely intimate. Mm. It was a very big surprise. Mm. So we precluded this physical presence and we have this video presence Physical presence where I don't know your names and now I know your names. Mm-hmm. And it's, and instead of, this is the interesting thing, instead of them talking to each other before and after class, they talk to me. Yeah. It's a whole set of substitutes that I could not have anticipated. But yeah. it made it a really good class. Sure. That reminds me of a situation that I had with a student. I I teach private piano lessons. I've always taught in person until March. And so we switched to online and I really honestly was dreading it because I I just feel like it's, I thought, oh, this is not going to be as effective as it will be in person. And I've been pleasantly surprised at how well it's gone. And one of the surprising benefits that I never would have anticipated was the fact that I'm talking more. My students are talking more. We're being forced to articulate and explain ourselves more because we can't uh-huh. just point or yeah. demonstrate as much. And one of my students is a high school student. Her mom contacted me over the summer and said, hey, my daughter, your, your student, ended up applying for a job over the summer at a local frozen yogurt place. And after the interview, she said, mom, you know, doing the online piano lessons with Mindy actually was really helpful in my interview because I just found I was used to talking and explaining myself and articulating things more. And I found that really exciting because I never would have guessed that. But once it was 
put there in front of me, it made sense that that would be a surprising benefit. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So let's tell me this. If let's say we have someone and any listener, I mean, this is definitely one of those episodes that does not apply just to music and musicians, but any art or to yes. Yes. Anyone in a creative field, whether it's architect or, you know, even a builder, there's a lot of creativity that goes into that. So anyone who's listening to this, who has preclusions. They have stuff in that column because of restraints imposed by quarantines and the pandemic. How, what what would you recommend that they do in a kind of a step-by-step thing? If we start out, would you suggest making a column of what the limitations are? I, I would make a column of what you always have had. Okay. The column, the column would be, so in other words, the initial state with everything. Ah, Okay. So you have everything in there. And now in this case, there are some things that are precluded by your situation. Uh-huh. And those are the ones that you start finding substitutes for. Okay. And sometimes one substitute, as I said, is going to lead to another one. And that's uh-huh. what you're looking for. The question, of course, is then where do you find the substitutes? And as I said, a lot of it comes from borrowing. It comes from borrowing from maybe another domain. And I'll give you an example from me with the math program. And that's where you're talking about thinking outside the box. And it's hard to think outside your own box of expertise, but you can borrow from other boxes. What you want to do is make your box bigger. Okay. You want to make your box bigger. Sometimes, and and your box also is divided up into into your expertise. But sometimes, I mean, I'm going to... I'll give you another example from art. So when Picasso and Brock are inventing cubism together, they insist that cubism is realistic. But at some point, the middle phrase, which they call hermeneutic cubism, it's old. It is so broken up that you can't even see what it is anymore. And Brock borrows from his other profession to support himself before he becomes famous. He is a, an interior designer. And Brock is the one who starts pasting wallpaper and the wood comb and suddenly we have collages invented because Brock is trying to make it look realistic again. He has borrowed from another box. Any recommendations on practical ways to go about borrowing from any other boxes? Well, you know, it's going to depend entirely on what the field is. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think if... Um, I will tell you in the math program that I developed, um, which is in this now in this in all the grammar schools in Lodi, New Jersey, um, we started. I was asked by the Department of Education to design an early math program, and I said, "You're asking the wrong person. I don't do math, and I don't do early. Why are you calling me?" And they said, "Dr. Stokes, we understand you know how to break a problem down into the structure of this of the solution, and that is the problem space." And what we did was my my lab and I, we got a whole bunch of early math program materials. And there is a real, we teach math terribly in this country. It is all wordy. Um, Mathematicians think in numbers, symbols, and patterns. And we're teaching children about apples and oranges on the beach and sandcastles on the beach. Mm. So the first thing that I had in the current column is wordiness. And I said, only number symbols and patterns. And then this is the first borrowing, okay? I worked in Tokyo for three years and I learned the Japanese count. And the Japanese count goes up to 10. It's the Asian count, actually. And then goes 10, 1, 10, 2, 10, 3, 20, mm. 10. Everything collapses. 
So I said, no English count, Asian count. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at the manipulatives and we have our kids using all kinds of stuff to stand for numbers. The Japanese use the abacus. It only stands for numbers and patterns. So now I borrow from Pratt from my design background mm -hmm. and I designed a manipulative. Um, and it just, it was everything in this program came from borrowing from someplace else. Mm. So if you have a fairly large repertoire, um, I th actually the other thing that I have to say, once you start, this comes out of brain, out of neuroscience. Okay. Once you start working on something, you would be amazed at what your brain will come up with in the associative networks. Mm. It will actually many times identify the other box that you should be looking at. As a music educator, I tend to think of applying this in music education classes. And to me, technology in general seems like a perfect box to borrow from yeah. in terms of uh, what you can do with technology, with the app that you're talking about, having one student, older students teach other students online private lessons as part of their yeah. music education. I think there's yeah. so many possibilities with, with technology. There's so many wonderful uh, concerts and world-class orchestras that are streaming music online that students yeah. could watch. Yes. I think the sky's the limit on that. Yeah, it's, it's yes, technology. I tend to, because I'm a painter and a writer, I tend to like things that are physical. Mm -hmm. um, but you and I would not be talking to each other this way if it were not for technology. And I would not be able to talk to 50 students two hours every day. You know, we're, we're doing uh -huh. Columbia. Columbia is also, oh, this is the other experiment. Instead of having 12 weeks of class twice a week, we're having six weeks of class four times a week. And I was one of the people who volunteered to do that. They're trying it out because I wanted to see how it worked if they were really immersed in it. Mm. And it's working really well. Mm. You know, there's, there's not a lot of time between Monday and Wednesday, but between Wednesday and Monday, there's a lot of time. And so whatever we finish at the day when there are questions that have been asked and not, and not answered yet, when I start the next day with answering those questions, they all remember what they were. Mm. So again, this technology is doing something, but yeah. it's never going to take away the person's fingers on the piano. Sure. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Well, there's an article that I found that I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called For a More Creative Brain, Embrace yeah. Constraints by Thomas Apong. And in the article, he says the most successful creative people know that constraints don't limit their efforts. In fact, they give their minds the impetus to leap higher. People who invent new products or launch unconventional ideas are often inspired by their constraints. Yes. Don't freak out about your constraints. Embrace them instead of trying to remove them them, use them to your advantage. No, and you have to use them because the, mo the most important thing is you have to preclude your currently most successful solution, or it's been precluded for you. In fact, there's a quote from Stravinsky someplace where he says, um, I am very happy to have the cycle of fifths because it, it, keeps, me, it, it keeps me contained. Mm. He was welcoming those boundaries. Welcoming those boundaries. You know, because yeah. if you can do anything, you will do nothing. Mm, that is very true. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> if you can do everything, you will do nothing. I've written about jazz, and I can't imagine improvising. And yet, 
I mean, I'm a, I, I went to Pratt. I'm a train. I'm a painter. Mm-hmm. Um, you want something painted? You tell me what style you want it in, and I can do anything within that. You want me to write something? I can write it ten different ways for you. But the idea of improvising on music, and now we're back to what is your expertise? Mm. And the more you know, the more things you have to recombine in new ways. Hmm. I like, like that too. I actually, I had a, a, there was an artist that I did a presentation with once in Chicago at a meeting and she taught at the Chicago, the, the art Institute in their art school. And she said for senior, she wanted me to make up a problem space for the seniors. And she said she wanted them to put down everything in the, in the preclusion, everything that they knew. And she said, and what they would change it. And she said, the fascinating thing was that they found it, some of them found it very comforting because there were actual holes in what they knew. There were things that they didn't know that they hadn't thought about themselves not knowing, which they needed to know in order to do something. In other words, she used it for something and found out something else. And that's okay. what you always want, Mindy. You want to surprise yourself. Uh-huh. You want to be surprised. I mean, I do research um, and I always design experiments so that we will be surprised. I don't want to simply replicate what we've done. That's not fun. Mm, sure. Well, and some people probably feel like, well, I don't like to be surprised. And I think the fact is, all of us humans, we do feel more comfortable when things are always the same, but we do feel more alive when they're different. They're boring when they're the same. <laughs> well, this has been really inspiring. I'm going to include in the show notes some ways that listeners can connect with you and your work, your book. And I'm also going to include some information on that math program that you were talking about that you had designed. I think there's going to be a lot of people who are interested in taking a look at that. And I know in some of the conversations we've had in the past, you mentioned that the children who are learning math through that program are learning much more than what's required by Common Core. Is that right? They are so far ahead of Common Core. They are so far ahead. And the thing that I love the best is they love math. Mm. I mean, I I sent you that math paper, didn't I? Yes. The math paper starts with a quote from a kindergartner who says, can we do math instead of watching the movie? (laughs) And that actually happened. The kindergarten teacher told me they they had a field day and so, the, you know, they go out to the park and they have a picnic in the park and they come back to school. And the teacher said, so we have an hour before school is over. Would you like to watch a movie? And one little boy raised his hand and said, can we do math instead of watching the movie? And she said, we did a vote and the class voted to do math. Wow. That is music to the math teacher's ears. <laughs> because they think it's so much fun. Sure. Oh, very cool. Well, I'll definitely include that information on the show notes as well. For that purpose, if they go to my webpage, there are three videos from kindergarten, first grade and second grade in the math program. So they can actually see the kids in the classroom. Oh, great. And it won't look like any math classroom they have ever seen. Well, can you close our our conversation today with a coda? I call it a coda. It's a musical ending, of course, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Okay. So I'm not quite sure how to do this, Mindy. I have Symphony of Psalms up on the bows, and I'm going to put put it on, and I'm going to talk over it. Okay. I'm going to read how I feel about it, and then I can tell you where this comes from. Sounds great. So this is the Symphony of Psalms. This is the Laudate Deum, the third part. 
Stravinsky said it was a prayer to the Russian image of the infant Christ holding his orb and scepter. And he said he originally composed it to the words of a gospody, a gospel in Slavonic. I am of Russian descent, and I grew up going to the Russian Orthodox Church. And let me continue with this. He also said, so let me talk about the music first and then about me. He said he cared above all for the sounds of the syllables. So the syllables are broken into rhythmic fragments, and they couple and they uncouple, and they are repeated. This is the Russian, as here it comes, obsessively like the chant of the Russian liturgy. And when I listen to this, Mindy, I'm, I'm crying right now, mm. okay? I can't help it. I feel the space between the, no, the dome of a Russian cathedral. Mm. I hear the tolling of the bells. I can smell the candles. I hear the reverberating, echoing repetitions of the choir. Around the dome, behind the Okanostasis, listen to it. This is ritual. This is Russianness. The Laudate is original. At the very end, which we may or may not get to, it is processional. And the voices are actually tolling the chant. There's that one drum underneath it continuously, the ostinato. Okay? But just listen to it. I mean, if you're not Russian and you haven't grown up with this music, it probably you're not crying, but I am. And I wrote down here the blood races, the, pr- the primal is present, at least for me, and of course for Stravinsky. But it's just, I love this music. It Beautiful. is my childhood. It's going to Russia with my dad. Um, it's very funny. It's blood music. It is in the blood. I mean, there is this this throbbing, this tolling. I mean, I hear the last time I was actually, I mean, I don't go to the Russian Orthodox Church in Manhattan. I don't go to church anymore. But the last time I was in a Russian Orthodox Church was my dad's funeral. Mm. And it was in the church on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And there was the dome and the iconostasis and everything painted gold. And the choir sounded like this. Mm. And the bells tolled. Mm. Well, and that's sort of like that olfactory sense is when you hear that music, it just has that amazing ability to just take us to a moment in time. Take you to a moment in time. That's what you asked for. So that's what I gave you. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, it was delightful. So delightful to have this conversation. And I feel really inspired to look at constraints and obstacles in a new way and to embrace them and take advantage of the creativity that they can create within me. Wonderful. Wonderful, Mindy. Thank you so much for inviting me. I have included a link in the show notes to a YouTube video of that third movement of the Symphony of Psalms by Stravinsky. If you'd like to listen to it with more clarity, Here at Enhanced Life with Music, we take a look at the benefits of music and its impact on our everyday lives through the lens of science, medicine, sports, and other disciplines. I'm including some links in today's show notes for previous episodes that are evergreen and especially applicable this time of year. 
If you are working on establishing a new fall routine with your family, you will enjoy one of the most popular episodes, episode six, how to get your child to practice without resorting to violence with author Cynthia Richards. And if you're getting back into the school year routine with a loved one who's dealing with autism, you can listen to episode 24, Autism Interventions with Music, for more information on options that are available to you. Since 1968, National Hispanic Heritage Month has been observed annually from September 15 to October 15. And episode 41, we have an interview with Los Ensoles, an organization in California that uses music to preserve Mexican heritage and connect various cultures. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.